Take a leap of faith, and you will find freedom. More freedom than you can imagine. Live by faith, and you will work hard. And you will love it. Look at the world with the eyes of faith, and you will experience a sharp pain as you see things and see people you never saw before. And you will experience at the same time an overwhelming joy as you watch God at work doing the impossible. Live by faith and there will be drama. So a week ago today, uh, I was here with all of you and uh, that night there were six of us from GRX who got on a plane and flew to Haiti for a week of mission. I feel like I have had more drama, experienced more drama in the last week than many people experience in a lifetime. I mean, that's my feeling. That's purely subjective. And the truth is, of course, that um, life is filled with drama. And the question isn't whether there will be drama or not. It's whether or not it will have any meaning. Whether or not it holds together, whether or not it is actually taking us somewhere. There's a, is there a story unfolding? So last night we got home, uh, 12.30, SFO. We landed. Um, we, uh, of course, had to drive across the bay. We had somebody pick us up, a dear friend, and uh, brought us back across the bay. Got home, I don't know, 1.30 or so. And uh, uh, I'm looking for a little sympathy here, by the way. This is all, all adding up, okay? And uh, I got home and realized that neither Nancy or I had a key to our house. <laughs> so a little more drama. And uh, the guy taking us home uh, thought he was just taking us home. Well, he had to take us to a friend's house who has a key. Now, who do you wake up at 2 in the morning to ask for a key? A really good friend. Unfortunately, her son was awake still partying with his friends. <laughs> so it wasn't that much of an intrusion. So we got the key. And we came home, and uh, we're ready to call it a night or a day or whatever that was we were calling it at that point. And uh, within a few minutes, we got a call that my dad had fallen and is in the emergency room. So, of course, we had to go take care of him. And when I say we, I mean my wife. She said, why don't you go to sleep? You have to be coherent in the morning. I said, I do? Yeah, that would be good. And she went over and looked in on my dad, who's doing well. He's in the hospital, but he's, he's going to be okay. So, wow. And yet, I woke up this morning before the alarm went off. Because I was excited to be with you. I was excited to see my friends from this week, which would be uh, Jen and Terrence and Susie and Julie and Nancy and I. were all part of that week in Haiti. And... Uh, of course, we had our plans, and uh, our plans had the most remote re connection with what actually happened when we spent that weekend in Haiti. There's drama, and um, there's something about going far away and being in a place where you're really quite uncomfortable because you can't read the cues, and you're kind of under the control of somebody else's agenda to kind of alert you to the drama of the kingdom of God, of what God is doing. I think it's so easy to miss that. I think it's so easy to walk through life kind of blind to it, insensitive to it, um, almost immune to it, almost choosing not to engage it because, after all, drama is, uh, 
is often what we try to avoid. We want our lives under control and simplified and in order, and that is just not the way it's going to be, especially if we're in tune with what, in fact, God is doing. And um, that drama gets really exciting as we continue in Matthew chapter 4. Turn with me or look on the screen as we look at just uh, the last few verses of this chapter which, of course, described the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, the public ministry of Jesus. We have uh, watched him in the throes of temptation, and we know what that's like ourselves because we, uh, we know a lot about temptation, and he identified with us and went through that. Uh, he alone did not fall. We all know about falling and trying to recover. He went through that and uh, went through it uh, perfectly, and then he called us to a um, to turn around, which is what the word repent means, and to prepare to receive the kingdom of God, a new value system that is contrary to the value systems of this world, of, 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 of every culture which has its own built-in resistance to what God wants to do. Finally, there's the calling of the disciples. We have Peter and Andrew, James and John, and they are sort of representative of, of, of the twelve. And then, of course, later on we'll have larger numbers of disciples and followers. And then it begins, and in these three verses, um, it just gets really, really exciting. And it's kind of a definition of the adventure, the adventure that uh, we call faith. And sometimes I think we call it faith, and yet that word for us is rather inert. Faith is something you believe. Faith is something you sign up for. Is faith something you actually live? Is, is faith a leap? Is faith a dare? Is faith a risk? Is faith a full investment of your life? Well, listen to this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from the north, from Galilee, the ten cities of the Decapolis, and from the south, from Jerusalem and Judea, and in the east, the region across the Jordan, from all of these areas, they followed him. It's a summary And it sets us up for what's going to continue, including, of course, the teaching that starts in Matthew chapter 5, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it is a blockbuster. It's going to knock you out. This is the mission of Jesus. This is the mission that that sort of animates this word that we use kind of um, casually and somewhat thoughtlessly, the word faith. Because faith always goes on a mission. Faith always does something. In fact, if you'll notice, the first thing that happens here is that Jesus is moving. This is a movement. Faith creates a movement. You can't follow someone who's standing still. You can't join something that's going nowhere, that isn't accomplishing something. And so Jesus is moving. He's going throughout Galilee in the north. It starts kind of small, and it starts kind of quietly, but it begins to build, and there's inevitably this momentum, because this is a whole new way of looking at the world. We prize self-reliance, or we fall into superstition, and a lot of that superstition, as it turns out, is sort of um, 
built on our imagination and uh, response to what we care about. But faith, living by faith, taking seriously that God is, is there and he has intervened in our world and is calling us to respond to um, that which is invisible to us and yet more real than the visible world around us. Faith is an explanation of the world that um, we would miss unless it's revealed to us, unless God shows it to us. So there's this movement, and God is uh, in Christ moving in Galilee. It always starts very specific, very particular, kind of remote, and then has a way of, of taking over, has a way of, 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 of winning a following, and that's what happens here. Then there's the teaching in the synagogues. And I want to talk about each of these words now. The moving means implies that the faith is, is, is animating. It, it energizes you. It, it takes you somewhere. It makes you alive. Now, once you're alive, there's a teaching to listen to and ultimately to begin to express yourself. And that teaching is essentially God's take, God's definition of what's going on in the world. This is, this is God's view of reality, this teaching. And, and we have it in Scripture. And of course, at that point in time, they had an Old Testament Scripture. And it, it kind of gave us a picture of the world from God's point of view. Here is, here is how we should live based on the reality that God is the source of life and has designed a particular kind of life for us. Tonight are the Academy Awards, okay? And some of you are probably hooked on that and will spend, you know, nine hours watching about 45 minutes of programming. <laughs> kind of goes like that. There's a lot of filler and a lot of fluff, but it's kind of fun, you know, and if you're into, if you're into the whole celebrity thing, you know, this is, this is your big day. And uh, there are always pictures, you know, that are up for nomination and get many, a lot of awards. And one of them is uh, Zero Dark Thirty, and maybe you saw that movie. And it was interesting because I was reading in the New York Times on the way back from Haiti, having been on a news blackout for about a week. By the way, you got to try that once in a while. A news fast is a great thing. It's amazing how much you don't miss. That doesn't really matter. Um, and then, of course, there are things you go, wow, that, that actually happened this last week. I was reading in the New York Times. It was about that movie. And there's a big debate about that movie. First of all, of course, about how accurate it is. And they're debating the accuracy of Lincoln and other movies as well. Anyway, it's a movie, and there's artistic, uh, you know, leeway given to uh, to those who are creating those films. But there's also a debate um, about that film in terms of the the use of torture, <clears throat> and a big debate about whether or not torture is effective. Did it actually yield useful intelligence that led, for example, to the capture and the killing of, of Bin Laden? And even if it was effective, and that's debatable. Is it the right thing? And the writer of this article in the New York Times said, let's suppose that it was effective to some degree. Does that mean we should do it? And he says, the problem is, in America today, we cannot have a moral conversation. We don't have a framework for such a conversation. We're simply utilitarian. Does something work? Does it not work? If it works, we've got to do it. Even if we have qualms about it, let's get past that and let's do it. If it works, but it's wrong, well, that's kind of a quaint, old-fashioned notion, you know, of, of, of right and wrong, and that, that comes from some, you know, medieval past, uh, medieval time. And yet, the author of this article is saying, you know, we're really missing something because we can't have that moral conversation, because we don't have a spiritual perspective, because perhaps there is an intrinsic right and wrong. Wow. 
when we listen to the teaching that comes from Scripture, we're, we're listening to the source of the one who has defined those parameters for us. And it's not that it's always easy and it's always simple and it's always absolute in every case, but we have a framework and we have a, a, a sort of ultimate authority to go to that makes all the difference. And as we teach about that, there's a sort of intuition and instinct in all of us, a conscience in all of us that says, you know, that is true. I don't necessarily want it to be true. I don't necessarily live like that all the time. I don't think it's always the popular point of view, but there's something that rings true when the teaching of God word, God's word is given and received. And that was happening as Jesus began to teach. Then there's a focus that comes in the next word, because there's teaching and there's preaching. Teaching is sort of the summary of all that God, all that God has said, and all that God declares about this is how life works. This is what I want you to do. This is how we should live. The preaching is a focus now on kind of the exclamation point at the end of all the teaching. Because ultimately this teaching puts us in a bit of a corner. This is who God is. This is how holy God is. And this is what holy living looks like. And there's an awful lot of bad news at the end of that. It's, it's good to know how it's set up, but then to realize that that I have failed, and we have failed, and we fail time and time again. And we can't live up to this ideal. But the preaching is the good news. The good news of the kingdom of God, that God has intervened. God has intervened decisively in Jesus. And he is doing something that allows us to find life again, to come back to life having fallen, having failed, having sinned, having lost our relationship with God. The good news is that God is doing something decisively in Jesus, and he's calling us back into a relationship with himself. And this good news is such good news, it's always a shock to us. Um, Because inside we, we, we have this sinking feeling that it's not going well and we're not quite sure how to make it right. In fact, the harder we try, sometimes the further behind we get. And absorbing that and not wanting to believe that and not really wanting to hear that, but absorbing that, we are now set up for the good news. The good news of the kingdom of God, that God is now reimposing his reign and that by receiving the one he sends to us, we are now invited back into a relationship with God. We are now cleared. We are now clean. We are now forgiven. We now discover how beloved we are. And that is what Jesus is doing. He is teaching. He doesn't vary from the teaching of the Old Testament, but he goes, takes it all to a new level by saying, and the result of this, the sum total of this, is not the judgment you expect and deserve, but it's the salvation that comes in Christ. It's the release, it's the freedom, it's the forgiveness in Christ. Talking with a pastor in Haiti. Spent a lot of my time with pastors there. We had two seminars that were going on simultaneously with the children's program, which most of our team was doing, the children's program. Um, but I was with 100 pastors in Port-au-Prince and then later 100 pastors in a place called Lakai, which is to the west. And sitting with one pastor, and he was talking about, I said, what are you, what are you preaching on this Sunday? I was just kind of curious. He said, well, he had this passage where there was a sort of diagnostic about what was wrong. And one of the things that, that is wrong is that we don't tell the truth. And uh, 
again, like having a moral conversation, we have a, a, a kind of hesitancy about you know, asking for and demanding full disclosure and, and, and truth from people. We realize you know, people just need to sort of fudge the truth and they you know, tor- sort of tell half lies and that's just the way you make it in our world. But that isn't God's view. God's view is the truth is the truth and integrity demands a full compliance with and a constant practice of the truth even if it hurts you. Even if it sets you behind, because you're going to be a person of truth, because you'll reflect the character of God. Well, we failed to do that, and he knows that his own church fails to do that, and so he's preaching about that, and he's preaching against that, that that lying tendency in us, and that tendency to even rationalize our lying. And then he said, and when you lie, God stops loving you. And I heard that, you know, and when you're, when you're with somebody else, you always want to find a way to agree, and I just couldn't find a way to agree with that. I agree with the teaching part of it. The Scripture says God demands truth in the inward parts. He demands integrity of us. And, and we know sort of instinctively that integrity is an important value, and we, we appreciate it and admire it in other people and know that we have failed ourselves to live up to that. So what happens? We have this terrible dilemma. And the answer was going to be in this sermon, and God stops loving you. And by the way, that makes a lot of sense. Because you lie to me, I'll stop loving you. I'll stop listening to you. I'll uh, tell other people about you and warn other people away from you. That's it. But the good news, the unbelievable good news that it turns out to be the truth is that God has intervened, and for all of us who have lied, which is all of us, there is a restoration, and it's by the power of God working in Christ that forgives us for all of the untruth, for all of the shadows that are in our character, forgives us and gives us a new relationship with God which is going to rebuild our integrity. The good news is not just forgiveness. The good news is also about the restoration of our character and the potential for Christ-like character because that's what God can do in Christ. So, so gently, I just had that discussion with him and I thought, I hope you don't miss the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, of restoration. I hope none of us miss that because at times I've missed that. And so I can't let that go by. We can't... We can't allow the gospel to be compromised. And he quickly agreed with me. He said, that's right, God always loves us. We might push God away. We might not listen to God. We might actually, you know, miss the blessing because we're not lined up with God. But God does not stop loving you. God is love. God is always himself. He doesn't change. We have a choice to make. We have to receive his love, but God's love continues. If God's love stops, uh, we're in some kind of trouble, folks. We, uh, we don't have anywhere to turn. I mean, you can go moralistic on it and say, God loves those who are, you know, in the upper, what should we say, 2%? Do you want to make a sliding scale out of this? Does God grade on a curve? I know many of us are used to that from our academic careers, you know, top 2% whatever it takes to get there. And those are the ones who are favored. But it turns out as you read the gospel, God has an awful lot of affection for the bottom 2%, for the worst among us, 
Because when he can transform the worst among us, the glory goes to him. And not to those of us who, have, who believe, who pretend that we're in the top 2%. So this good news is, is, is a radical notion and it's a comprehensive offer to every one of us. To every one of us. And to the person you've given up on. God is continuing to love. That's the good news. So, Jesus is moving. He is teaching. He is teaching the, the, the general truth of God's perspective. He is preaching the good news specifically. And he's, of course, delivering the good news himself. And then he's healing. Wow, we kind of forget about that part. We think, well, this is all about just a message. No, it's a message that is lived. And the specifics of the healing. The different kinds of needs people have. Those who are in severe pain. You might be in severe pain this morning. It might be physical, it might be mental or emotional or financial. Severe pain. Relational pain. Jesus has come to provide healing for that. This is a certification that he has come to make all the difference in the world. And a difference the world can't make in any other way or find in any other way. For those who are possessed, who are literally in the, in the throes of evil, who are captured by evil systems or evil, evil habits or an evil impulse or an evil presence even, Jesus has come to provide healing for that person. For those who are, who are paralyzed, who just can't move, whether physically or spiritually or in some other way, they, they can't move, they're stuck Jesus has come to be the healer, to become the facilitator of God's healing. He is the Savior. He is the liberator. He is the champion. And he has come, and he's, he's as, as humble as Jesus is, he is also incredibly bold. I mean, bold beyond belief. Um, as C.S. Lewis once said, you know, he's either a liar or a lunatic, or he is the Lord. Nobody else could make such bold claims as he makes. And, of course, he has to deliver and does deliver on these claims. And this is the beginning of his ministry. And what follows in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is a constant stream of reports of what, in fact, he does as he teaches, as he heals, as he does miracles. And the healing happens. There's a, there's a fifth thing that happens in this passage. There's a following. There's an impact. There's an impact. I mean, this is really exciting stuff. Imagine being around when he was just beginning. Imagine being part of the crowd. Imagine being one of his disciples. Imagine being a skeptic whose skepticism is overwhelmed by the wonder and the power of what he does. Imagine being hungry for truth, and here is the one who embodies the truth and never compromises it, not for a moment, and yet at the end of that, there's this avalanche of grace that you weren't expecting. He reinforces God's truth and God's word in every possible way. He lives it out. He's never, he, he, he even asks people, who convicts me of sin? I am completely submissive to the Father's will. And because I am, and you are not, there's a separation and God has sent me to bridge the gap between God's perfection and your, your missing the mark. And the response is, of course, amazing to him. There's a following. Big, large crowds begin to follow him in Galilee. 
in the ten cities in the north that are kind of a mixture of Gentile and Jewish. Syria, by the way, is the whole region. We think it actually applies to most of what is Israel and even beyond. I mean, this is kind of a picture that, that takes us beyond what um, we usually think of when we think of uh, you know, Israel proper, which is kind of a sliver. It's, it, it's, it's larger than that. And Jerusalem, of course, and Judea, they're following him as well. But also in the Transjordan, and there are some enemies of Israel in the Transjordan, the Edomites and the Ammonites and, and others who were sort of classic you know, outsiders, they're also hearing the good news. They're also receiving the healing. And everyone who comes gets the healing. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's such a strong statement, such a strong announcement. It doesn't feel like anything that's ever happened before in the history of Israel or the history of the world. In the history of comparative religions, nothing like this has happened. You know, religion tends to take something very inspirational and translated into kind of a code, a legal code, a moral code, a, a, a code that you, know, you can sort of follow externally and know whether you're making progress. It usually overlooks the key matter of the heart. What's the condition of your heart? Jesus goes right for the heart of people. He calls people to follow him. He's not calling for a certain kind of behavior all by itself. He's calling for a heart that produces that behavior. Of course, he's looking for fruit. God is looking for a changed, you know, life. But the ultimately, it's, it's, it's about the character that makes the difference. Even in the Old Testament, God makes it clear what he ultimately is after. It isn't, it isn't until Jesus arrives that we see how this is all resolved. But listen to God speaking through the prophet from Amos. I hate, I despise your religious festivals, he says. That's just an unusual thing for God to be saying. I thought he created this institution called religion. But it so easily goes sour. It so easily becomes self-focused. It so easily creates a hierarchy of people who claim to be better than others. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Jesus picks this up later on in Matthew as he addresses the religious leaders of his time because their vision is far too small and far too self-centered as it turns out. And far too hopeless in terms of what could actually happen to human beings. Listen to this critique. It's kind of scathing, actually. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses, but they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those... Enter who are trying to. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. When he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. That's just not very nice language. Did you, did you hear a little bit of an insult there? It's an insult directed at the heart of religion that takes God's, the reality of God, and what God wants for this world, 
and turns it into kind of a um, meticulous code of, of hygiene and protocol and etiquette and other things that, are, that, are, that, are, that maybe have some value in some kind of trivial way, but, but don't acknowledge the larger issues of justice, of mercy, of God's love going out to rescue those who are hurting, who are in severe pain, who are paralyzed, who are possessed by evil. That's too far too small. What Jesus is coming to, co- to accomplish shatters the expectations of every one of us, including the most religious among us. Now, there's a, there's a video clip that I want to show you that I think expresses this about as well and somewhat radically and certainly from a younger point of view, but I think it's right on. So take a look. What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian, and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice. Tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me. Acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin. Because it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, He looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it He called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention. How Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do. Jesus says done. Religion says slave. Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different claims. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man. Which is why salvation is freely mine. 
and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. That was a revolutionary act. He spent a little time in the synagogues. Not a lot. And when he showed up, he tended to be disruptive. He went to the temple, and uh, he wasn't necessarily welcome there. He was on the road a lot. It was a road trip, this uh, life of faith. He was going somewhere. He would go wherever he could connect with people. People in severe pain. People paralyzed. People who were in trouble. People who didn't see themselves as religious and therefore weren't qualified for God's blessing. And he broke through, he broke all the categories. And according to the religious people, he broke all the rules. And yet, he kept all the rules in terms of what was the principle behind them. Because you healed somebody on the Sabbath, somebody should get upset with that. You see, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Because God's ultimate intention is to, is to bless us. And when he calls us to join him on this mission, to follow him on this mission, he is calling us to the same life of faith. So, for example, we had our crew in Haiti. And we were going to do vacation Bible school for children. And we had eight churches that signed up. The organization that I'm a part of, the other part of my life, called the Leadership Connection. We have connection, we have relationship with all of these pastors who are part of groups that meet together. And they signed up and they were excited to host these vacation Bible schools. And I tried to alert and warn, though I didn't have a lot of information, our crew, that it's hard to know how many, how many kids to expect. So, um, one of the first days... We have two leaders from GRX. Now, we've got great leadership here in children's ministry. You know that, right? We have world-class children's ministry going on here. We have two leaders, and we have 700 kids show up. Okay? So I don't know what handbook you're going to be reading out of that will tell you how two leaders can handle 700 kids. Now, we, had, we did have volunteers from the other churches. Now, we've got a cultural barrier. We've got a language barrier. Um, we've got, you know, all kinds of things we don't know about. We have plans. Uh, you, you know that Jen had her, her whole bag of tricks ready to go. But I don't care what you're ready to do. You are not prepared for a moment like that. And it was actually fun seeing Jen a little insecure. It was really kind of a delight to see Jen herself and Terrence not entirely clear on what they're supposed to be doing. They actually had to... Live by faith. They actually had to count on God to provide. And I would hear every night, because I'd be with the pastors, and every night, you know, I'd come home late afternoon, early evening, and they would be so full of it in terms of what the images, the impressions, the conversations, the stories, the comedy, the horror. 
the great news of what God was doing to break through into the lives of these children. And I've seen you know, the videos of hundreds of children literally you know, making crafts or singing songs or, or whatever. I, I did get a chance to show up at the end of one of these VBS programs. Hundreds of kids, and they'd come from uh, a combination of churches, and they would come from the community around, many of them never having been in church. And I actually showed up just as our team was leaving... And I came in, and I was frightened by the number of children that were overrunning the roads. It was like, let me out of here. I can't handle this. This looks like this is a mob scene. And that's where faith does, I think, its finest work. When we're overwhelmed, we don't know what we're doing and how we're going to do it and watching God at work. We'll have a chance later on to tell you about you know, some of our experiences there, and they will tell you about it because they, they can talk about it with real drama in terms of what they did and how hard it was and yet how beautiful it was at the same time. When Jesus shows up, this is the kind of journey he has in mind. Not something simple, not something easy, um, not something you can take charge of and be in control of, but it's the adventure you don't want to miss. We stayed in a guest house in Lakai. I met... Um, Two individuals, uh, one man, uh, both of them intriguing guys. They were kind of an odd couple, like, how did you guys ever get together on a mission team? And they're doing pure water there in Haiti. And they're doing it in Africa as well. And one guy's a pilot, the other guy's an engineer. They work together, and they uh, um, have this system that creates this amazing amount of clean water from a little bit of, um, um, of, of a kit that they have. And I'm listening to the one guy, and I hear later about his story of, as a teenager, you know, he's um, as far away from God as he can possibly be. You know, and he's doing drugs from the earliest days, almost possible physically, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, you know, alcohol, too much, way too much, cocaine, a little bit will kill you. And, and one day, you know, as he's appearing to, um, you know, be heading toward his own imminent early death, he prays to God, I, you know, save me. Save me. Is there good news for someone like me? And uh, he went to sleep for a couple of days, and he woke up, and he was alive. And um, God has him from then on. And, 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 and he's sort of fearless. I mean, it's interesting to talk to such a person who's, whose life has been claimed by God's grace. He's got the good news, and all he can do now is give it away. And so he has this ministry, and he flies around the world, and he helps people and he's part of the healing ministry of Jesus. You get to be part of the healing ministry of Jesus when you follow him. You are part of this mission. It isn't just something you sign up for or sign off on and say you believe it. You begin to live it. And you begin to make a difference in the lives of people that you think, I don't know how to help them. But God makes a way. God shows you. God provides. And when the answer comes, you think, well, I guess God did this. And how blessed I am that I get to be a part of that. One day, um, it was in the afternoon, and I was waiting for the groups to come home. I had finished earlier with, with the team of pastors, the group of pastors that had gathered. And I felt the sudden urge, and I'm not really a mystic, okay? I'm much more of a logical guy, and I'm an, I'm an activist. I want to, you know, make things happen. But I had this very definite and very urgent pressing um, impulse to pray for my wife. And I, I, I heard sort of, I don't know, in my imagination, I heard someone announcing to me that she had been killed in a car crash. 
And they came back, of course, in, in cars every day. So I'm thinking, what? Well, that's crazy, and I could dismiss that. But it was so pressing on me, I immediately dropped into prayer. Now, prayer isn't always urgent for me. You know, I pray when I can. I pray when I feel like it. Um, sometimes I pray just because I'm supposed to. It's on the schedule. It says, you pray during worship right here. So I pray. It's what I do. You know, I pray professionally. Get paid by the word. No, I don't. <laughs> but I had to pray for Nancy, and I didn't realize I was praying for both Nancy and Susie because they were in the same car um, that, in this case, was being driven by somebody who should never be driving a car um, who um, was taking them on a, a very reckless ride, and um, they were both afraid for their lives. And I prayed. Um, and I really think God told me to pray at that moment. I really think that was my mission to pray at that moment, even as they were doing their mission, and now, because of it, we're in harm's way. Uh, because this is a risky venture that God calls us to. And that, therefore, prayer has to be a key part of this. We've been doing prayer all month. And some of you said, okay, when can I stop praying? At the end of February? Why in the world would you even consider that? Why would you even raise such a question? Don't you understand this mission that we are on is so demanding, in fact, far beyond anything we can do. We have got to be praying constantly. Well, exactly how does prayer work? I have no idea. God tells us to pray. God says he responds to prayer. God gives us amazing promises about that response to prayer. It's part of the package of good news that he gives to us. It's part of his, his whole plan of salvation, that he's calling us to be a praying people, a people who are completely dependent upon God and his resources. We trust him completely. And I'm thinking about my wife. I don't want to hear that news. I prayed against it immediately. And, um, and they arrived safely, a little bit shaken, with stories to tell. Prayer is key to this whole thing. It's key to the mission. It's key to Jesus' mission. He went away and prayed often by himself, even though he was too busy. Well, he was too busy not to pray, and so are you. You're too busy not to pray. There's too much going on in your life. There's too much at stake for you not to be praying continually realigning yourself with God, continually listening to God for what he's telling you, and continually pleading with God for the things you know he wants. And he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it for you. In other words, if you are aligned perfectly, if you're getting to know God that well, you pray because it's powerful in a way that can't be explained. And that's part of this, the, the truth that Jesus is sharing with a world that um, is confused by all kinds of other messages. So we're going to close our time today with a time of prayer. We've been, of course, focused on that. I hope we will never get over it. I hope, I hope we're, we're gaining a passion that we will never lose. And um, I want to ask you all, as we think about a time of prayer to close, to stand where you are. And I want to begin by asking you to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. Um, I want you to think about the lines of the prayer, the first line identifying the one that we um, are related to, who has called us into a relationship, who has invited us to know him in a personal way, to recognize that his kingdom is the new agenda, and that kingdom has a will to be done, and we want it done here and now, 
Because we want people who are in pain to be relieved. We want people who are, in, who are lost to be found. We want people who are confused to, to come to know the truth. We want people to be healed. We want His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have all kinds of needs. We have all kinds of temptation. We need deliverance. So would you say this with me as a prayer? I hope that reflects the desire of your heart. Our Father in heaven, we honor your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the prayer that people on a mission who are following Jesus on his mission, pray. But it's just a model of what we might pray. It's an introduction to prayer. It's not the only words we pray. Because we have lots of people and places to pray for and situations to pray for. Now in Haiti, there is often a time for prayer. And the time for prayer invites everyone to pray simultaneously. I'm calling it Haitian style. There are other nationalities that claim this way of praying. I'm going to invite us all right now. You can be quiet if you want to, but I invite you to give voice to your own prayer about the mission that awaits you, that a mission that awaits our church, the people that you are concerned for, the people that you work with, the people that need to know about the love of God that is expressed in Jesus. I would invite you right now Standing for a couple of minutes, would you join me in praying out loud is the invitation for the mission that Jesus himself gave his life for and continues to empower us to do? Let's pray. Dear God, I want to thank you for sparing the life of my wife. I want to thank you for sparing the life of